Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with unwavering commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and humble host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend, you find these conversations enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this little channel of mine. There's nothing transactional about it. Um, what we're trying to do here on this channel is to build a community of curious thinkers and fearless speakers, among whom I can assure you, you most certainly belong. For content specific to wellness, literature, philosophy, meditation, and sleep, I encourage you to visit my sister project and channel, Numa by Daniel Finnerin, on which you'll find all of that material, and to which I'll include a link in the show notes below. My guest today, with whom I'm absolutely honored and delighted to have the opportunity to chat, is Sally Fallon. <clears throat> Sally is the author of the provocatively titled book, Nourishing Traditions, the cookbook that challenges politically correct nutrition and diet dictocrats, which was published, if you can believe it, almost a quarter of a century ago in the year 2001. From the immense and enduring success of that first book, a series was spawned under the Nourishing Traditions brand. Sally has written or co-written books addressing child and baby care, broth, remedies for the modern world, family planning, and a topic on which we're sure to spend some time, animal fats. Along with being a prolific author, Sally is the founding president of the Weston A. Price Foundation, for whose quarterly magazine she serves as editor. She also founded a Campaign for Real Milk, an indispensable project whose goal is to link raw milk farmers with those who wish to consume one of nature's most magical products. She is the president and owner of New Trends Publishing and, since 2009, along with her husband, Jeffrey, owner of the P.A. Bowen Farmstead in Bucolic Brandywine, Maryland. Delicious <laughs> artisanal natural cheeses produced at that farm are featured at over a dozen restaurants in the area to every Marylander's gustatory delight. For good measure, her academic history includes degrees in English from Stanford and UCLA. Sally, it's an honor and a privilege to be joined by you today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, so thank you so very much for agreeing to chat with me. Sally, if you'll accompany me for a brief little while, I'd like to take you into the realm of the hypothetical. I want you to imagine you were empowered to frame a new constitution, a dietary constitution under which all Americans would, in the pursuit of optimal health and happiness, live. What would this constitution look like? What would be its fundamental pillars? And how would you sell it to the people for their acceptance and ratification? <laughs> uh, well, I think we would have the constitution ban industrial seed oils. There's the start. They are the number one cause of all the health problems that we're seeing today. They do not nourish, they starve the brain, 
They cause hormonal disruption. Uh, they are the chief cause of the big rise in cancer and heart disease, even diabetes, obesity that we've seen in the past 50 years. And they have replaced the healthy animal fats that are so important for our health. So that's, that's what my constitution would say. So that's a pretty simple constitution. Yes. No, <laughs> only no. one article. <laughs> article, article, two, article two would be no flavorings in the food. So no MSG, no Cinemix. Uh, I'm convinced that this is the second most um, harmful thing in the food supply. Um, because MSG, first of all, it, uh, the food manufacturers can use it to make food that tastes like cardboard, actually tastes like something. It's addictive and especially affects the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is the master gland. It is the seat of impulse control. And we are seeing more and more a society that has no impulse control. They can't sit still, can't study, uh, can't concentrate on things that is violent, lashes out, addicted. Uh, so th that would be article two. <laughs> article two, excellent. So article one is the elimination of all seed oils. Article mm -hmm. two is the elimination of MSG and other artificial additives and sweeteners. Yes. What about article three? Let's round out this, this tripartite. Well, uh, I suppose people would say um, no sugar, no refined sweeteners. And I think you have to be careful with that because you'd have a revolt on your hand, hands. <laughs> um, I think we need to minimize refined sweeteners. I never say that you should never eat sweet things. You should eat them in moderation. You have a sweet taste in your mouth. It needs to be satisfied. Mm. But um, I certainly would um, ban the artificial sweeteners. And, uh, um, sugar alcohols and high fructose corn, corn syrup and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, maybe we should just make uh, refined sugar very expensive, big tax on it. <laughs> so prohibitively expensive because and, of tax. And really yeah. encourage the production of honey and maple syrup and coconut sugar and, and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So, so the more natural sweeteners. Right. Um, again, right. to which we are naturally disposed and and that's no I, I mean even primitive people ate honey and coconut sugar and maple syrup and you know when the maple maple trees started to run in north america that was a time of great frivolity and feasting and you know was, people had a wonderful time with the sugaring and they dried the maple sugar and carried it and traded it so yeah it was a important commodity for the Native Americans. Of course, of course. Uh, and it's interesting how a lot of these commodities begin in their natural state as right. very important and very healthful, but through yeah. time are sort of manipulated and right. changed and corrupted. Yeah, sugar, and sugar originally was sold as these little round brown cakes. And it was just the dehydrated cane sugar juice basically. And it was very sweet, but you know, at least it had all the minerals and everything in it. Right, right. It's not mm -hmm. completely absent all those important mm -hmm. other yeah. uh, minerals and, and vitamins. 
I want to go back to Article One, which is okay. the elimination of all seed oils. <laughs> now, this I think just recently has has sort of come into the the new world of health. Now, I'm sure it's not something that is new to you. Uh, you've probably been following mm -hmm. this for quite some time, but I can say personally that only within the past couple of years, it's come into a greater prominence. Yes. More and more people seem to be talking about seed oils, yeah. more uh, influencers online, on Instagram, are, yeah. are promoting this idea that one should eschew completely these yeah. very harmful, um, yeah. I don't know what you would call them, substances. So yeah. can you- That's the first thing you can do. We say, get your fats right. Right, right. Because so it's pretty overwhelming when you start to change your diet and get healthy. So sure, sure. What do you do so, first? And we always say start using butter, cooking in lard. I know that raises eyebrows. Um, cooking in tallow, and just use for your salads. Use some real olive oil, but um, otherwise, it's animal fats. And very briefly. Can you tell us exactly how seed oils rose to their prominence and ubiquity? Because mm. um, at my age, I've really never known a world without seed oils, yeah. and many of us haven't. Mm. Right. Uh, so, so how did they become so popular and basically involved in all of our food substances? Yeah. Well, it started with cottonseed oil from the southern United States because that was our the main crop, and once once you separated the cotton from the seeds. You had this waste product. And there was a company called Procter & Gamble who figured out how to remove the oil. Well, actually, it wasn't, that wasn't Procter & Gamble. There were just these little mills all over the South that were removing the oil. And the first thing they did was adulterate olive oil with it. Hmm. Uh, so it was a very gunky, uh, toxic oil added to the fact was there's actually an actual poison in it called gossipol, which was probably responsible for so much of the poor health that we've that occurred in the South. Uh, then um, a company called Procter and Gamble what, figured out how to harden the liquid seed oil by a process called partial hydrogenation to make trans fats because they were using it in candles. Well, electricity came along and people didn't need candles anymore. And so what were they gonna do with this oil or this uh, substance? White, it's, uh, well, just a hardened fat. And they decided what we're gonna do is sell it for people to eat. And without any idea of what the effects of this would have on people, they started selling it as Crisco. Crisco means uh, crystallized cottonseed oil. And this started in 1912, and they published this book called The Story of Crisco, which is brazen uh, advertising um, lies, propaganda for this product. It said that if women used Crisco instead of lard, they were more modern, they were, their houses smelled better, they were cleaner, and their children would grow up with better character if they use Crisco instead of lard. So they made it seem um, vulgar. Like a better, better moral character. Yeah, better moral character. Well, they would be less interested in sex, of course, because. And so much of uh, so much <laughs> of our dietary history in America is 
centered around that idea, trying to yeah. dampen the sexual impulse. Oh, yeah, the, the Seventh-day Adventist and the cereal and yeah, everything. Because we were a pretty lusty group, see? <laughs> really well-nourished in America. We had, a big, we had a big continent to, to yeah, inhabit. To fill. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so where was I? So anyway, they came out with this book, The Story of Crisco, and it's been a relentless propaganda campaign ever since. They enlisted doctors, people in white coats with their stethoscopes to um, promote this oil uh, or the, the Crisco. And then along comes corn and we get corn oil and eventually we get soybean oil. 80% of the oil used in America today is soybean oil because they're feeding soybeans to the animals and they um, crush the, well, let's see, and then they crush them. It's a kind of oily seed. Uh, one of the problems with soybean oil, same, same uh, theme here, one tablespoon of soybean oil contains the same amount of estrogen as a birth control pill. So not only are these oils um, emasculating our population, causing uh, sterility, gener you know, each generation it gets worse, but they are just very toxic. They, um, they're carcinogenic and they, they cause premature aging. In growing children, they lower the IQ. Uh, so they're, they're just, there's absolutely no excuse for them to be in the food supply. Right. And you can imagine that uh, soybean oil being delivered in one way or another in a BPA laden plastic bottle. Yeah, then right? that on top sort of that. Of enhancing the, the estrogenic effects that we're suffering. Yeah, but that's nothing compared to what's there to begin with. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, do you think that we. And by the way, it was the Seventh day Adventists who really started pushing soy. Hmm. And they have the food products made with soy and, and so forth. They were the big... And, and that's very interesting because I think a lot of people associate the, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Loma Linda um, yeah. people um, with, with health and with, with wellness and inhabiting yeah. these, you know, these blue zones, right, um, yeah. which we're always on the lookout but perhaps there's, there's something... Um, by, by the way, you know what the main blue zone of the world is? So I, I'm going to guess, I'm going to try to anticipate your, your answer, which is the, the right answer. I'm going to say Japan. Oh, it's Hong Kong. Ah. The average lifespan for women is 88 years. I mean, that's really high. My and average lifespan for men is 84 years. Hong Kong is the area of the population of the world that eats the most meat. Hmm. Their con meat consumption is over a pound a day. Mm -hmm. And also, and this really is surprising, they are the population that consumes the most dairy products at 10 ounces a day, all of it imported. Right. I was just going to say, I don't think they have much of a domestic stock no. of cattle. They're at a tiny, well, as everyone knows, geopolitically, polluted Hong Kong eating all this meat and not even particularly grass-fed meat or anything like that they just eat a lot of meat i'd be curious to know what smoking rates are like in hong kong i know in china generally they are pretty high, yeah. high. it'll be very so, interesting very interesting yeah to yeah to know that even though they smoke assuming let's assume yeah. they do, uh, 
so long as they adhere to this high animal fat protein diet, yeah. it's able somehow to, to almost nullify the, the adverse effects. Of yeah, well, you know, my colleague, Mary Annig, used to say, mm. all the people I know who died of lung cancer never smoked. Mm. And she believes it was the industrial seed oils because, see, your, your lungs need saturated fats to work. The lung surfactants are made up of two saturated fatty acids. And if you're eating a lot of seed oils, your lungs don't work. And they're very vulnerable to carcinogens. Do you think that we've reached a point where enough people are now cognizant of the dangerous, if not deadly effects of seed oils that there will be some change? Or do you think, and I'm sure you grapple with this question often, do you think that the, the seed oil industry is so large and so uh, ubiquitous that it would be impossible to extract that product from our foods? Where do you see this going? Well, I, I mean, this is how nature works. I call this the natural selection of the wise. And the people who don't change, uh, the people who don't re-embrace animal fats, the people who continue to eat foods that have these seed oils in it, not just fast foods, but even foods at Whole Foods, you know, all the so-called healthy processed foods, uh, they will eventually die out. That's nature's way. In nature, they become infertile, and either the children don't reach adulthood or the children don't breed. Uh, it seems kind of cruel, but that's how nature does it. And... Uh, it will never change from the top. These people are too powerful. But it will change eventually, possibly with a decimation of the population. I mean, the Bible says there'll be a remnant left. So I hope that remnant's a pretty big remnant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and many people are changing. Uh, we have... You know, lots of members who've embraced our diet, who brought their kids up on this diet. These are beautiful, healthy children. We've shown that it works. Uh, so they are our future. They are the people who will fix things because there's a lot that's broken that needs fixing in this world. My goodness. <laughs> and a gross understatement. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's 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 difficult. And I, I sympathize with people who who aren't yet subscribed to this way of, of living and eating that we should outline a little bit more in, in some greater detail. But there are so many forces against which you are trying to fight and they're, yeah, they're quiet, they really, really subliminal is. forces of which you're hardly even conscious. If you're well, you know, trying, well, even, trying even when you're, like you said, if you're just trying to eat healthy and you're on something of a budget and you're going to the grocery yeah. store, you're trying to find the organic thing, but you know, laden, that organic thing is often inevitably laden with all of these harmful chemicals that you're pumping into yourself and into the rest of your family. So you know, there, there might be a willing... Shop, shop the aisles. I mean, mm -hmm. you can still mm -hmm. do it at a supermarket. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't say eating organic is the first step. The first step is eating animal fats. Mm -hmm. The hard thing to find at the supermarket is lard. They used to carry lard, but they don't anymore. Yeah, and well. even the specialty butchers, the one in our uh, town, doesn't carry lard, but it's available. Uh, and here's where um, we really urge people to shop directly from a farm uh, to get their raw milk from a farm, and most of these farms will sell lard also. Yeah, and and 
hopefully more and more people will um, will, uh, for lack of a better word, evolve beyond the yeah. the bad association that we have with with lard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, when, it, 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 it mean, made it seem it's, vulgar it's, to use lard, right. and you it's should a word feel that's guilty a, if you eat butter. Right, 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 and it's a word that's synonymous with with being fat and with being yes. lethargic, yeah. you know, yes. if you were, if you're called in grade school, a, a piece of lard, yeah. You, know, yeah. you don't go away feeling very good about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it's strange the way in which these things become um, obnoxious to people through the, through the culture. Yeah. Well, and it was deliberately created. Too. Well, sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned the word wise, and that's mm -hmm. important because one of your projects, I would say is, is the wise traditions diet. Right. right. But it seems to me that we here in America are in a rapid process of unlearning our greatest and uh, most vital traditions, be they our philosophical traditions inherited mm -hmm. from Athens, our religious traditions inherited from Jerusalem, our literary traditions inherited from Britain and the mm -hmm. continent of Europe. So, as I said, your series of books is entitled The Nourishing Traditions. The diet that you advocate is the wise traditions. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of tradition writ large? Why should we be reaching back to it? Uh, why is this tradition wise as opposed to another? Um, and maybe finally, is it foredoomed like other traditions to be forgotten or yeah. ignored? Well, uh, the interesting thing about traditional cultures is they knew exactly how to eat. Nobody, no scientists were telling them. They knew they had to eat liver to have healthy babies. They knew that the butter from, you know, spring milk was important for having healthy babies. Um, they knew that they needed um, bone. If they weren't a, a culture that had milk, uh, they knew they needed to eat bones. Uh, they ground them up bones and add them to their food. So if you ask them why they did this, they would just laugh at you hmm. because they just knew. And, and also I will say that in these cultures, there really wasn't any choice about how to eat. You just ate what you'd always eaten. There wasn't any thinking about it. Okay, so we're on this path for a kind of a, another step up in our consciousness. And we've completely lost the instinct and now we have to come at this through a different type of thinking. And we call it the scientific validation of traditional food ways. So we have science now, okay? And I mean, science is basically a good thing. It's just been corrupted, okay? But we've, we have learned why liver is so important for fertility. We have learned why butter um, protects your lungs. We have learned why butter supports thyroid function. It's it's all there in the scientific literature. And so uh, to me, this is thrilling to find that the science actually supports these traditions. And the other thing is now we have all these choices that the tra traditional people didn't have. And so we have to think. We have to actually think and choose and exercise a certain amount of will for every bite of food that goes into our mouths. And this is training for us for this next level of consciousness, the development of what I call the spiritual body, which Steiner calls the spiritual body, which is the thinking body. 
So food plays a really important part in the development of the spiritual body because we have to think about what we eat and understand why something is good or bad for us and make that choice. It's fascinating to me that we have and maintain this ambivalence about traditional peoples. Mm -hmm. if, if you think about it, let's say during the Enlightenment, when Jean-Jacques Rousseau was living mm -hmm. and he became synonymous with the idea of the noble savage, yeah, yeah. sort of pristine, primitive man to mm -hmm. whom we can look back affectionately and think, wow, this is how we ought to be, completely happy and, and well. And of course, you know, it, it may have not been such an easy life <laughs> and mm -hmm. perhaps was romanticized in many ways. But then, so let's take that as the progressive idea in the middle of the 18th century or a little mm -hmm. bit earlier. You fast forward to today and the progressive idea when you look back at traditional cultures who maintain, for instance, that there are absolutely two sexes and there is no binary mm -hmm. in between. And the and, women work really hard. And the right, women and there are, very, there are very specific roles mm -hmm. that they fulfill. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we we sort of scorn that or we ignore that. So we, oh, we, we it's we funny because we, in those because societies. of course yeah. we, we um, have, I think, unlearned a lot of the wisdom of traditional cultures. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, you know, we've advanced in, in ways that they haven't, but, but in our advancement, we've lost a lot of the, the, the ground upon which we all collectively stood. So maybe you can comment on that ambivalence, the progressive, like and dislike for traditional cultures, mm -hmm. depending on the era and depending on what they stand for. Yeah, well, I, I start off my book, Nourishing Diets, by saying we mustn't romanticize these cultures. We would hate to live in these cultures. There were, as you say, there were very set roles for people, but also many of these cultures practice cannibalism and ritual torture. Uh, you know, they were, in many respects, they were not nice people. Now, the ones that Dr. Price found in the South Seas and the Eskimos and everything, I mean, they did seem very happy and healthy. But again, I'm not sure that we would want to live in these cultures. Uh, so we mustn't romanticize them. However, Dr. Price said, and I do agree with this, they have more to teach us than we have to teach them. And what they have to teach us is more important for our future than what we have to teach them. And that's because the body's requirements for nutrients hasn't changed. No matter how modern we get, how different our consciousness is, how our lifestyle, um, our morals, whatever, the requirements of the body are the same. And they haven't changed and they won't change. So that's why it is so important to uh, learn the wisdom of these traditional food ways. That's something of an uplifting insight when we are very fixated nowadays on all of the differences between us to know that with slight variations as a species, there are very specific things on which we thrive, nutrition. Yeah, and what we require, yes, yes. Right, on which we're absolutely dependent. Now, mm -hmm. you twice mentioned the name Dr. Price. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the numerous organizations of which you are seemingly the founder, the, the, the leader, the organizer, uh -huh. 
is the the Weston A. Price Foundation. Now, mm -hmm. in my ignorance, I'll admit, I thought initially upon hearing this name that it was, uh, you know, this somewhat aristocratic sounding um, financial institution. Oh, no. <laughs> I think I had Waterhouse in my 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 yeah, mind. Price Waterhouse. Uh, yeah, yeah, Price Waterhouse. Uh, of course, I was incorrect, and I did a little bit of more research, and I was absolutely fascinated by this man. So, can you tell me briefly ab about this character, this figure, yeah. um, this well, scientific all, mind, like Dr. Weston Price, and maybe also tell us at which uh, you know at at what age did you discover him, and and how did he become so influential? Well, he, I like the idea that it sounds like Western. Price, the price of the West. Sure. And he pointed out the price of Westernization was the gradual decline in health, unless you um, adopted their food ways. Okay. So Weston Price was a dentist. He was from Cleveland, Ohio, and in the 30s and early 40s, he traveled to different isolated parts of the world to first of all, study the dental health of these people and then their overall health and then answer the question, what were they eating? And he found 14 populations that had excellent dental health with very few cavities and some there were no cavities, some African tribes. And they had um, broad faces, plenty of room in the, in the mouth for the teeth to come in straight. They seemed to be immune to the white man's diseases as long as they stayed on a traditional diet. And what he found was that these diets were very nutrient dense. They were very rich in minerals, but particularly rich in the fat soluble vitamins that we get from organ meats and animal fats. So that's our emphasis uh, at the Weston A. Price Foundation. Yeah, and, and he seems to be a very um, enterprising scientific mind or seemed yeah. to have a very enterprising scientific mind. I'm sure he was not wide, or his views weren't widely accepted at his time, uh, nor are they today. Did he embrace that role? Do you know? Did he embrace that role as a somewhat controversial um, voice in the scientific community? It's not that he was trying to embrace anything. He was following the dictates of the scientific method. Right. And he was very um, uh, thorough in what he did. I just wrote a blog called Dr. Price and the Eugenics Movement because that was really big during his day. The second, I think it was the third eugenics conference was held in New York in 1932 and he started his work in 1931. And so the idea of the eugenics movement was that there were people who had bad genetics and they should be eliminated in one way or another. And the people who were unemployed, they were unemployed, obviously, because they had bad genetics, not because of the rape and pillage of the financial systems and the imposition of colonialism on the world, but because uh, they had bad genetics. So Dr. Price really was quite strong in saying that everybody has perfect genetics. Oh, and then they also said that this degeneration that Dr. Price saw was because of race mixing. That was he said, absolutely not. Nature always builds harmoniously if the conditions are favorable. It has nothing to do with race or really even your genetics. The genetic, the blueprint for the human body is the perfect blueprint. And that blueprint will manifest if the diet is adequate or, you know, 
um, very nutritious. So he, he spoke out very strongly against the eugenics movement and this idea that um, there are people with bad genes and we just need to get rid of them. Right. Which, and that, and that's people not, today who believe that. See. Sure, sure. And that idea was regnant among progressives at the time. I'm reminded of the famous court case, Buck versus Bell, uh, over which I think Oliver Wendell Holmes presided. And, and he famously uh, makes that statement that a certain amount of generations of basically invalids is, is, yeah. is quite enough and, and yeah. something should be and done about 40 that. 40 states had laws allowing, quote unquote, the sterilization of the unfit. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, it's horrifying to reflect upon that, but also to recognize that in some corners, these ideas are still sort of percolating. They're, they're definitely percolating. The Club of Rome is, they are eugenicists. And um, we'll read the blog. <laughs> I did, actually. <laughs> and, 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 and it's, oh, it's such a... It's such a delicate topic. I mean, you one cringes at the very thought of it, yes. but it is something with which one has to grapple because you this is part of the intellectual development of our it. civilization. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, it still kind of looms in, in many people's minds. So I also want to know, at what age did you discover Dr. Price's work? Because he was prominent, like you said, in the, in the 1930s. I was about 24. Um, I read his book, 1974. 26? Yeah, 26. Um, so I already, I, I come, I, my family was, they were Francophiles. My parents were Francophiles. Uh, they loved France and they were foodies. They were the original foodies. I mean, we grew up eating cassoulet and, uh, you know, all these wonderful French dishes. My mother was a great cook. And this was in California? California. And um, so we always had butter and we always had real food, but I wasn't, we weren't getting raw milk anymore. And we didn't eat liver because none of the kids would eat liver. And so my mother didn't even try. Um, I remember my dad saying, I don't understand it. How come your mom and I have naturally straight teeth and all of you and perfect eyesight. My dad was a pilot, a perfect eyesight. And how come all you kids need braces and glasses? And so that question that he was asking was kind of in my mind all the time. Anyway, um, I, I was already cooking this way and I actually had added liver to our diet because I liked it. And, and um, my daughter, first child was born in 1973. And then I read this book and I thought, oh, I'm already doing things right here. Um, but it was a time when this idea we should be on low-fat diets and put your kids on low-fat diets and non-fat milk, et cetera, was becoming more and more shrill. And I just completely ignored it, um, kept cooking, kept using lots of butter, um, sneaking liver into their food, and, <laughs> and I ended up with four kids and none of them needed braces. And I needed braces, so I reversed the physical degeneration. Um, partially, they still needed glasses, <laughs> but not as not as strong as prescription as mine. So, um, so then um, I got this idea. You know, we need a book that puts Dr. Price's findings into practical form for people because the book is a you know you have to wade through it kind. Of. So um, that's when I got the idea to write Nourishing Traditions, 
I teamed up with Mary Ennig, who is a lipid specialist, and um, we published the book. And then we decided we also needed an organization to kind of keep up with the science and, and you know, just keep educating people. So we founded the Weston A. Price Foundation in 1999. Our first journal came out in 2000, spring of 2000. We had our first conference in 2000. And here we are. <laughs> Being a Francophile, or at least the, the offspring of a, a Francophile um, um, union, how did you justify your pursuit of English literature uh, at university? Were, oh, well, my French you? wasn't good enough to do French literature. <laughs> Were you not disowned for not studying Proust yeah. and Hugo? <laughs> no, I mean, I've read a lot of French literature, but in English. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, by the way, you know, I do have some quotes from James Joyce in the Nourishing Traditions. Is that and, cool? and had, Yes, and there was one that my daughter found about eating kidneys. I don't know. It's in there somewhere. And right? well, to... I had to get permission. Uh-huh. And I wrote his son at that time, owned all the rights to the James Joyce material. So I wrote to him and asked for permission. And he did, gave me worldwide rights. He said if I'd send him a copy of the book. So I did. Oh, incredible story. Yeah. It, you yeah. know, maybe you know, maybe you don't. The, the namesake, well, the, the title yeah, of my channel yeah. is Finneran's Wake. And it's not that I'm the greatest Joyce fan. I mean, you know, <laughs> Finnegan's Wake is impenetrable. But... Uh, that was sort of yeah, the you mean Ulysses, but I'll tell you the the Dubliners. Yeah, it's probably the greatest book of short stories ever written. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing. I get chills just thinking about that book. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was a genius. He really was a genius. Yeah, I want to delve into literature, but not first before exhausting a few <laughs> other topics. <laughs> and that that next topic is milk. Now we've mentioned mm -hmm. it a couple of times, uh, but I learned from your work and consequently that of Dr. Mm -hmm. Price. Um, I learned about the world of raw milk. It's a world of which I think more and more people are getting a glimpse and uh, oh my lucky, goodness, if they're you lucky know, enough we, to taste. <laughs> we have, so we have this website, realmilk.com. Precisely we how I discovered you. Yes. Yes. 100,000 new visitors in July, just in July. Mm. It is roaring. Raw milk is just taken off. I'm and thrilled. You, and you can count me among one of those 100,000. Oh, okay. so, but I'm embarrassed to say that prior to uh, maybe a year ago, I had almost no experience with raw milk. Uh, like many millennials, I, yeah. I grew yeah. up on 2% milk. Yeah. Milk was strictly prohibited <laughs> in yeah. my household. And Yoohoo! if you can believe it, which to its credit does not advertise itself as milk. It's yeah. chocolate drink. Yeah. Uh, but really quickly, I just wanted to, to read to you the, the dueling ingredient lists of Yoohoo and raw milk. Okay. Uh, so Yoohoo is water, high fructose corn syrup, whey from milk, cocoa, um, non-fat dry milk, natural and artificial flavors, sodium cassinate, corn syrup solids, calcium phosphate, dipotassium phosphate, palm oil, guar gum, xanthan gum, mono and diglyceride, salt, spice, soy lecithin, niacinamide, oh, vitamin B3, sucralose, vitamin I, A, palmitate, riboflavin, vitamin D3, fortified with that, of course. And contrasted with raw milk, the one ingredient, which is, mm -hmm. of course, raw milk. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how do you explain 
a world in which that first drink, yuhu, is considered a perfectly appropriate way to quench a child's thirst at lunchtime. <laughs> Yet the second is considered dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, dangerous yeah. or child abuse. Yeah. Well, there's the money from raw milk goes to the farmer and supports a uh, decent income for could support for millions of farmers all over the country, all over the world. Uh, or it goes to a big food manufacturing company that uses the cheapest ingredients to make the most profit and doesn't care about the health effects. So we have to decide, do we want a world where few corporations, a few people make millions and millions of dollars or millions and millions of people make a decent living? And the way we get the second one to happen, I'm assuming your listeners prefer the second choice, is we buy foods directly from farmers, starting with your milk. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, and, it might take a little bit more effort, but resources like yours, realmilk.com, facilitate that. You can go onto that website and, and, and learn exactly where in your community yeah. or in your state yeah. you can go to find raw milk, raw cheese, yeah. and other... And we only have four states to go. When we started, there were 27 states where farmers could provide raw milk one way or another. Now there's only four where they can't. So when we get to 50, we'll have a big party. Tell me, and I, I hope that's soon, tell me if I'm wrong to, to view the milk issue as a microcosm of political thought more broadly. Oh so, yeah, I so, think it's- So yeah. bear with me just one second, because as I've been researching raw milk and, mm -hmm. and consuming it now, <laughs> almost exclusively when I can, um, it, it seems like, it's on the one hand, as I understand it, you have immense national, often subsidized dairy corporations that mm -hmm. are protected by our federal government by, like I said, subsidies and, and onerous regulations. On the other hand, you have much smaller local uh, familial dairy farms that are severely impaired by those same regulations of which the bigger companies are the beneficiaries. It, it's it's almost like a struggle between those who advocate small government and those mm -hmm. who advocate a large and intrusive government. Mm -hmm. And perhaps I'm wrong to view it that way. Maybe it's just milk. But tell me, how do you how do you culture? It's a classic. How do you understand it? Yeah. How do you uh, the it? modern dairy industry is the Marxist model where the farmers cannot choose their price and this is why they're going out of business we used to have 6500 dairy farms in maryland now we're down to about 200. Mm. whereas the um farmer selling raw milk he can he can choose his price and it sells it anywhere from five to 25 dollars a gallon the price that the farmer in the system gets is about the same price he got in world war ii it's it's uh, an insult really so it's it definitely two different systems and the former system, the conventional system is predicated on the idea that we live in a harsh, dangerous world full of predatory bacteria and they are going to kill you unless you kill the milk first. <sighs> Whereas the second view recognizes the science that shows us that raw milk 
contains numerous components that keep pathogens at bay, that strengthen the immune system, strengthen the gut wall, help the child be you know, able to live with this microbial world his whole life without any danger. And I should note that by killing the milk, we mean pasteurization, homogenization, correct? And yeah, there was a study and um, you, you haven't heard about the study, it was recent, 2019, carried out in China. And they looked at what processing did to the milk proteins, whether it was heat or spray drying or microwaving or even freeze drying. In every case, the proteins were denatured and became toxic. And in the mice or the rats that they were looking at, they had um, damage to the blood, to the um, brain, and the mice were more stupid. They affected their learning and memory. Mm. So you want to give this to your kids? You know, these uh, heated milk proteins. See, the thing about milk proteins is they're very delicate. They're three-dimensional objects with precise electrical charges at you know, each little fold. And when you heat or you know, mess with this in any way, um, this is all destroyed and the proteins become toxic. Um, I like to point out that pasteurization is a rust belt technology. It's a clunky, um, uh, you know, really unscientific technology that destroys the milk. Whereas we have the technology today, small, elegant, accurate, inexpensive technologies for keeping milk clean, for testing it. And we have a technology to get clean, safe, raw milk to every child in this country. Instead, we're using this rust-based, uh, rust-belt, hammer-like technology to destroy nature's perfect food. And it really sullies the good name of Louis Pasteur, doesn't it? Oh. <laughs> who's, who's, well, he never, he never talked about pasteurizing who, milk. Who, whose genius was originally applied to, I think I read in one of your articles, alcohol uh, and, and yeah one and he wasn't a genius he wasn't a genius he was a nasty old man he was a cheater <laughs> that much <laughs> and, i didn't know see yeah <laughs> and when he died there were these engravings of altars with pasture looming above the altars and all these files and flasks on the altars and people kneeling down to the altar this was the new religion the germ theory became the new religion and it fit in perfectly with the idea of worldwide colonialization mm -hmm. and, um, you know, destroying the peasant yeoman farmer. So your Francophilia stops at Pasteur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, noted. <laughs> so I'll have to educate myself further on Pasteur. See, I've bought into the pastor pasteurization propaganda. Yeah. Um, so um, he really did cheat. He kept private notebooks that were different from his public notebooks. Mm. And he, um, so I talk about this in my book, Contagion Myth, but also on some of my blogs, I talk about it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I should, at this point, Put a plug in for your blogs, which are voluminous and very enlightening. I don't know how you have the, the time to, to, to juggle all these activities, but your writing, like I said earlier, is prolific and extremely educational. So I, I'll, of course, include a link to the oh, blog, um, which goes back all the way to 2016 
tons of great articles on that mm-hmm. uh, on that site. Let me ask you, uh, going back to the political point, as the owner of a dairy farm, mm-hmm. uh, do you detect a political bent in those who support local dairy farmers? Um, yeah, or um, at grocery stores, you know, uh, is it you know the preferred beverage of conservatives and libertarians, or, or do you yeah, find more, it's, like, uh, the whole type? spectrum? I like to say it's a preferred beverage of the radical middle, mm-hmm. uh, but we have um, all kinds of folks come into our store. We have a very large African American clientele um, who are most grateful, most grateful. So. Um, it's um, yeah, it's the and people say that about at conferences too. You have uh, political conservatives, then you have aging hippies, and and everything. Right, right, in right. Because when I when I imagine a farm, a dairy farm dedicated mm-hmm. to the production of raw milk, you know, my first thought is sort of this hippie loose, uh, yeah, you know, live, live type of an atmosphere. Um, Not the daughter of Frankophiles, right? Right, right. Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but then, like I said, there's also this other contending um, force, which is the the more conservative, you know, smaller government, less intrusion into the business type of abuse. Yeah, people want healthy kids, you know. Right. Um, And by the way, political spectrum. We also do raw cheese, and we do pork, and chicken and eggs and turkey. So we're not just uh, raw milk. Oh, of course. And I mentioned the the cheese earlier and mm-hmm. I, I hope to order, if you deliver to Florida, I hope to order <laughs> some, <laughs> some of that pork. Mm-hmm. Um, let Just because we only have about 10 minutes left, let me just ask you briefly if, if you can describe for us what life is like as a, as a farmer or as the proprietor of a farm in, in Maryland having come from California. Well, I have the, the most important qualification, that's to be an English major. <laughs> when I think of it, a forest, um, there's a farmer named Forrest, and then there's Joel Salatin. Uh-huh. All these guys writing about farming, they're all English majors. So. Oh, I didn't realize that he was as well. I think, but I think there's something very special about that. Think, I mean, you mentioned earlier the yeoman, um, yeoman farmer, yeoman farmers and, and, when you say that, I think of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. You know, of course, he wasn't out there really doing the the, the heavy lifting. But no, no, he wasn't. <laughs> still, still a a prodigiously intellectual person who had this connection with the earth. Yeah. And you read his notes. And he had and a lot of ideas about farming. Yeah. Absolutely, and yeah. he uh, took a lot of notes from mm-hmm. from everywhere that he visited, be it France or the the mm-hmm. Northeast. And he implemented a lot of those. Uh, agricultural ideas that were on the mm-hmm. vanguard into his own practice. Yeah. So I love the the union that you have, the synthesis of your academic mind and your <laughs> agricultural practice. So tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I can't say that I'm doing the lion's share of the work. Um, I do make cheese once a week. So I'm the cheesemaker and the sanitarian and the bookkeeper. Um, but I have a wonderful team. Uh, we have six full-time employees, so it's a, been a wonderful um, project to get this started, not without its worries and headaches, but uh, we love the life here. And I think for someone who does write, I think it's very important to also work with your hands Um it's like my husband said when he was milking cows, he milked 100 cows twice a day for 30 years. 
you said I, I got all my thinking done while I was milking the cows because it's just kind of automatic and you kind of it's almost like a meditation. Yeah, I, I probably enter enter into a state of profound mindfulness when you're doing that. Yeah, and, and making cheese is, is is a ritual. It's a very precise ritual. And, you know, then you can come back and dash off a vlog because you've been th thinking about this for the whole morning. <laughs> <laughs> Uninterruptedly, right? Without yes, any sort that's of... That's right. That's um, right. So, you know. and, um, I, you know, I love to garden, so I, I get to do that too, so, yeah. uh, let me ask you, we're going to jump very quickly from milk to metaphysics. Oh, okay. As the farmer philosopher that you are, I think you are more than qualified to address this question. Metaphysics, of course, deals with the ultimate nature of things. Mm -hmm. I pose to you this question. What is the ultimate nature of things? Is it matter? Is it mind? Is it something in between? Uh, <laughs> the ultimate nature of things. The ultimate nature of things is to bring the spiritual into the physical. People think the goal is to go to heaven. No, the goal is to bring heaven into the physical. Hmm. And that's our job. And we start with having uh, very healthy physical bodies. And that means that you eat nutrient-dense food. It doesn't mean you're a vegetarian. It means you eat meat and anything that's going to make your mind sharp. Yeah, so that's that's the goal, is to bring the spiritual into the physical. So a synthesis of the two. You're more of an Aristotelian. Is there a, a philosopher? Um, oh, I am? What about Plato? I put them together. I, I like to separate that. But a previous conversation I had with my good friend, Glenn Elmer's a political philosopher, he's always insistent that I'm that I'm wrong to, to, to distinguish them so... Uh, Oh, um, clearly, as I tend to do. So mm -hmm. you can be platonic. That's fine. Now, are you, um, do you subscribe to a certain philosopher or philosophy? Is I'm there a great Steiner fan. Uh, who really resonates Steiner. with you? Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. That's an excellent answer. And the one that I kind of anticipated based on uh, your, your prior um, comments. Uh, and with our few remaining minutes, I have to ask, aside from metaphysics, I know that you have a passion for literature. Obviously, we've spoken about this, and specifically for Shakespeare, as I noted from. Oh your yes. So the question is, hopefully not one that you've ever received. If you could invite one and only one Shakespearean character to your home for dinner, to whom oh. would you extend that invitation, and what meal would you serve him or her? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be false deaf. Uh, so that was my choice. He was a slob. That's so um, funny you say that. That was my choice. False deaf. Oh, yeah. Just for the, the company, I think, um, would be worth it. It would probably be, let's see. Hmm. <laughs> well, it'd be one of the women. Because... One of the little, um, not little, but patterns that you see in Shakespeare is a woman appearing uh, from above. It's like the apotheosis. It happens in so many plays, especially mm -hmm. the romances. At the end, um, um, the taming of the shrew. I mean, you should be in tears when Kate appears on the balcony at the call of her husband, because 
it's a great symbol of the marriage of the soul and the spirit. And there's so many plays in Shakespeare that end this way. That end with a woman at some sort of heightened elevation. Yes, yes. So I don't remember uh, Lady Macbeth. I don't know where she was. No, no. Well, those are tragedies. <laughs> that doesn't happen in the tragedies. <laughs> but, but in, in the romances and, and the comedies, he's, it's a very common uh, pattern in Shakespeare. Huh to which I've not been uh, sufficiently attentive. So I'm going to reread all my Shakespeare and, and, yeah. and look after that. So would your choice, um, look would, at, your choice um, be Kate? would your choice look be Kate at, from um, the one with um, oh, where they throw uh, staff into the, the Thames in the vast laundry basket. What was, what's that called? But at the end, Mistress Ford appears on the balcony and invites everyone to dinner, including Falstaff. He's now uh, made it into polite society, so to speak. But again, this you know rollicking comedy, and then you still have that um, um, pattern at the end. Yeah, yeah. And so then I'm, the, going, the, I'm um, going to I'm going to press you, although this is yeah. this is enlightening. Yeah. <laughs> Who would you invite? Who is the person? Who is okay, the Okay, so, um, well, I might invite Kate. Okay, that would Thank be genteel would company. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. That's a good That's a good choice. I'm still sticking with Falstaff for okay. all the aforementioned reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I might regret my decision. <laughs> but with enough wine to, to begin the meal, I think that he and I yeah. would get along just fine and he wouldn't be too discriminating a, a, a dinner guest. You know, it's interesting. Prince Hal, when he uh, becomes king, Mm -hmm. He stops drinking ale and he starts drinking small beer. There's a that's a line in there, and small huh. beer is basically whey. So it's a whey drink. It was a lacto fermented whey drink. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And of course, the alcohol content back then in Shakespeare's day was was quite different from what it is today. Well, it would have been much lower in the small exactly, beer. Exactly. 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 So I yeah. think that's a very interesting thing. He stops drinking ale. And starts yeah. drinking small beer. Yeah, when and he's that's why yeah. Shakespeare yeah. is just inexhaustible. You can always yeah. find such symbolism in all those small things if you really yeah. have a discerning yeah. eye for that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's end with just two questions more. And again, you've been very generous with your time, mm -hmm. so I want to thank you for that in advance. Uh, what is the one health myth or falsehood of which you'd like to um, disabuse everyone? What is the one thing that everybody's... Well, saturated animal fats are bad for you. Right. And I They're thought actually that might be essential for life, yes. Yeah, I thought that might be your response. Um, so just to emphasize, saturated mm -hmm. fats are not the enemy, quite the opposite. Yeah. They're not only your friend, but they are conducive to, to flourishing. They, they, they're, they're essential. They're essential Absolutely. for health. And the final question with which I conclude almost every conversation regards the transcendentals, the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. I ask you, Sally, to conclude this conversation, upon which of the three do you place the most importance? Truth, goodness, oh or goodness. beauty? Well, I guess most people would say goodness, um, but they go hand in hand, I think. And when we're talking about building the body, it would be beauty because all human bodies are 
supposed to be beautiful, attractive, handsome. And that's what we're trying to, and, and that's why teenagers want to be handsome and beautiful. They want to be, because they're supposed to be, you know? And uh, that's what we need to get back to, to teach parents how to feed their kids. So they'll have this um, um, right, this, um, you know, that's your, your right to be beautiful and handsome and healthy. Beautifully put. So <laughs> sounds like kind of an integration of maybe the two or three goodness and beauty um, that we are then able to to exude. Uh, I won't say that necessarily that handsome people are necessarily good. And I think that's one of the weak parts of Dr. Price's work. Because we've seen handsome um, gangsters, you know. So sure. um, I don't think that's plenty of good people are incarnating into less than perfect bodies to fulfill their mission. So that's, we shouldn't judge the goodness of people on their appearance. Sure. And sure, and you're not misunderstood, at mm -hmm. least not by me. I, mm -hmm. There's a certain beauty that is, that is in the form of a human being. And yeah. to recognize that all you need to do is look back at the great Athenian sculptures or the great- Yeah, or the Renaissance painters, yeah. Or the Renaissance paintings. And that in those works that form of beauty to use a platonic mm -hmm. term that form of beauty is is absolutely apparent so that's mm -hmm. that's what you're speaking of it's not necessarily the the mm -hmm. chiseled um lawless man who's running around yeah. <laughs> battering people with his fists yeah. no we don't mean that but we do mean something that kind of transcends and also inhabits us mm -hmm. um, so sally again we've reached our hour you've been so generous with your time and with the distribution of your of your knowledge i mean it's so it's so important and i think more than ever today a lot of people are coming to realize this alternate way of life which really is shouldn't be alternate it should be the foundational and well it's a lot of fun yeah this diet that we advocate is delicious satisfying you don't renounce anything you don't have to give up anything you know it's every meal is wonderful and as someone who is a poor cook but has adopted this this mm -hmm. diet, um, I can say personally that I have thrived because mm -hmm. of it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm as staunch an advocate of it as as anyone could be. And now because of you and because of your organizations, mm -hmm. which there are many, um, I'm, I'm better educated. So I'm better mm -hmm. able to talk about these things with people well, good. who are curious in them, mm -hmm. uh, about them. Uh, let me leave the last word with you. So, of course, I'll put all the links to your books to your websites to your blog to the real milk website in the show notes below but do you have a message with which you'd like to leave our listeners today eat butter <laughs> simple i love yeah. the, the laconic eat simplicity eat butter and um, that i will i will do i can guarantee you <laughs> so again thank you i, I met a girl today uh, we had somebody visit us she hadn't eaten butter in years she said oh i would never occur to me to eat butter. <laughs> and that's what's happened to so yeah. many people. And, mm -hmm. and that's why this relearning, this kind of mm -hmm. awakening is, is mm -hmm. so important. Yeah. Um, and I hope more and more people realize the, the, the yeah. first of all, how delicious butter is, but how yeah. nutritious it is as well. Yeah. And, and support your local farmers who are creating yes, yes, a yes, beautiful exactly. product. Yeah. Well, that's Thank all you. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Sally. Thank you again so much for your time and for your wisdom. And 
to everyone else out there listening, please do consider subscribing to this humble little channel of mine. Again, all we're trying to do is grow this community of interested people who are fascinated by a diverse array of, of opinions and of thinkers and of people um, and are, who are always willing to talk and to hear something that might be unusual to them, like <laughs> eating butter. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so again, thank you very much. Thank I'm you. Daniel Finneran signing off from Finneran's Wake. Thank you.